daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Sierra Leonean President Julius Madabio is on a state visit to China. How will the visit inject new impetus into China-Sierra Leone ties? NATO allies have rejected Emmanuel Macron's idea of sending troops to Ukraine. How does this affect the broader discussion about Western involvement in the Ukraine-Russia conflict? A new report shows that the U.S. businesses are cautiously optimistic about their investment in China. What factors are driving this sentiment? China and Sierra Leone have pledged to strengthen their ties. Chinese President Xi Jinping on Wednesday held talks with Sierra Leone's President Julius Madabio during his state visit to China. Both leaders expressed appreciation for their country's cooperation in economy and social development. China's foreign ministry said on Monday that China and Sierra Leone enjoy a traditional friendship, noting the two sides have supported each other on issues concerning their core interests and maintained close coordination on international affairs. China and Sierra Leone established a comprehensive strategic cooperative partnership in 2016. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague Ding Hung. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Zhao Ying. Um, so first of all, President Biao is reportedly the first African head of state to visit China in 2024. What do you make of the timing of this visit, and what do you think he's mainly looking for through this trip? Well, I think in a bigger picture sense, this may be part of the efforts to further boost China-Africa cooperation because because this landmark gathering of the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation is now once again scheduled to be held in the second half of this year in Beijing. So this visit is a good opportunity for Chinese and Sierra Leone leaders to exchange their views on this expected event. In the meantime, for sure, this is going to be an important visit for Sierra Leone. President Biao paid a visit to China back in 2018 for that year's Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. That was not long after he came to power.、Uh, last year, he was re-elected, which was、uh, which has received a congratulatory、um, message from President Xi Jinping personally. So. I guess he feels now it's time to come to China once again after his、uh, re-election victory. Sierra Leone is currently grappling with some economic challenges, notably in terms of the dwindling exports revenues due to weak international demand, as well as a lack of private investments in some important economic industries like agricultural sector and fish farming. So. I think for sure, on the mind of President Biao himself, he is of course thinking about striking economic or business deals with China in order to attract more investments and capitals from the Chinese side. Yeah, and according to available official figures, the bilateral trade volume between China and Sierra Leone stood at 900 million U.S. dollars in 2021.、Uh, that's a year-on-year increase of more than 70 percent. And in 2022, bilateral trade reportedly hit more than 1.3 billion U.S. dollars. What do you make of the potentials for trade and wider economic cooperation between the two sides? Yeah. So one thing to、uh, notify here is, of course,、um, China is Sierra Leone's biggest trading partner.、Uh, this has been the case for several years、uh, in a row. Chinese companies have had footprints in this country since 1985.、Uh, for example, a very high-end hotel in the capital city of Freetown was renovated and now operated by a Chinese company called. Beijing Urban Construction Group.、Uh, this hotel is now a major spot in terms of housing the country's foreign dignitary visitors. So a lot of expertise in in terms of hotel management has been brought by the Chinese. And this is merely only one example.、Uh, in recent years, Chinese companies have increased their cooperation with Xi'an in terms of the mining and steel industries, etc. And I think、um, those trade figures that you have cited、uh, earlier 
are very encouraging, and most likely their growth momentum will not stop there. According to the data I have collected on my part. Uh, momentum is actually very strong in both ways, in both directions. Not only in terms of China selling to Sierra Leone, but also in terms of、uh, China buying from that country.、Uh, so overall, trade imbalance is very limited. But in the meantime, I think there is also some room for further improvement because. Uh, at the moment, currently it seems China is mostly importing raw materials from Sierra Leone, so there is a genuine need for diversification in categories. But of course,、uh, that will largely depend on the degree to which、uh, the industrialization of Sierra Leone will go. Yeah, and, and domestically, it is reported that、uh, President Bill's development policies have been mainly focused on areas like food security, youth development, technology, and infrastructure. How do you think China might be able to help Sierra Leone to pursue development in these areas? Well,、uh, in general, I think these are the areas in which China has witnessed a great progress domestically here in China. And in in relevance to a point I made earlier, these areas really have a lot to do with the industrialization in Sierra Leone.、Um, in terms of、um, infrastructure, for example, this is actually an area that China is already very much involved.、Uh, there is a project called China Sierra Leone Friendship Road, which is probably the only、uh, modern highway in Sierra Leone nowadays. Built by Chinese,、uh, China has also participated in the construction of stadiums,、uh, which also benefits the locals because they have a great passion for soccer.、Uh, in December last year, together with a business partner、uh, from Senegal, the China Road and Bridge Corporation signed a deal with Sierra Leone for the construction of an eight-kilometer bridge. Linking its capital and the country's main airport, so I think all in all, projects like that are all part of the bigger efforts and you know、uh, endeavors to try to help、um, Sierra Leone pursue sustainable economic growth through better technology and infrastructure, and of course, education resources as well. Yeah, and in a recent interview, Sierra Leone's Minister of Information and Civic Education said the most important part of his country's relationship with China is human capital exchange,、uh, which has benefited both countries and will continue to flourish. What is your understanding? Well,、um, either in terms of economic cooperation or educational cooperation or people-to-people -people exchanges, I think at the end of the day. They are all、uh, done and conducted by individuals and people.、Uh, and here I can share two two specific examples. The first one is the Confucius Institute affiliated with the University of Sierra Leone.、Um, the it is actually the first Confucius Institute over there in the whole West African region. And through its twenty teaching spots across the country. Uh, this institute is offering courses in not only the Mandarin, the Chinese language or Chinese culture, but more importantly, on Chinese martial arts, traditional Chinese martial arts like Tai Chi, and the martial arts courses, including its leading coach, a guy from China,、um, in particular, have been, according to a report, a newspaper story I have read about. Have been tremendously popular among the locals, and many students of these courses are nowadays really yearning for coming to China one one day for study at the Shaolin Temple or or study for some other academic resources, etc., etc. This is one example. Another example is that since March last year, the twenty fourth batch of the Chinese medical team in Sierra Leone. Has provided care for more than twenty thousand local patients during its、uh, one-year mission. It has carried out surgeries while at the same time providing training to local medical staff.、Uh, China dispatched its first medical team to the country in as early as 1973, and so far, a total of 24 Chinese teams have been deployed to that country. This is actually something that has attracted 
uh, acknowledgement and appreciation from President Biao、uh, personally. So、uh, I think all these examples are really vivid cases of human capital exchange, and they are very very exciting. Yes, indeed. And regarding Sierra Leone's economic challenges that you mentioned earlier, it seems that Western nations refuse to bankroll President Biao's government due to suspicions about lack of transparency and the so-called accusations of abuses of power and poor governance. What is your take on this, and what do you think is the difference in terms of how China views this country? So I think what you have、um, described、uh, just now is really a typical, you know, Western manner. There are always strings attached to their aid packages or loans to not only African countries but also、uh, the, the less developed part of the world in general.、Uh, and I think the fundamental difference regarding China's practice is that、um, on China's part,、um, Chinese government in particular. Um, have a genuine view that、um, those、uh, partners in Africa they are equal.、Uh, there is not there is not a condescending view on the part of the Chinese government. And when China wants to help Africa develop, when China wants to provide a helping hand, th- there are usually concrete actions. And and by the way, I don't think things are so bad over there with Sierra Leone. Uh, to say the least, this country enjoys a very、uh, or a relative degree of political stability or social stability.、Uh, for example, in terms of the 2023 Global Peace Index released by a Sydney-based think tank called the Institute for Economics and Peace, Sierra Leone was ranking at the third place in the entire African continent. And forty seventh place in the whole world, so things are not so bad, and there is a future for this country. Yeah, thank you, Ding Hun. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. The United States and several European countries have ruled out sending ground troops to Ukraine after French President Emmanuel Macron said nothing should be excluded. On Monday, Macron said there was no consensus among European leaders on sending soldiers to Ukraine. The comments prompted response from other European and NATO member countries. Several European leaders, including those of Germany, Italy, and the UK, have confirmed that they would not be providing soldiers. A White House statement said President Joe Biden has been clear that the U.S. will not send troops to fight in Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has also denied such plans. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has warned of direct conflict if NATO troops deploy there. For more, we are now joined by Babel Felgenhauer, a Russian military analyst based in Moscow. How would you interpret Macron's remarks regarding the potential deployment of troops to Ukraine, and what do you believe might be motivating him to make such statements at this time? I believe that、um, President Macron wanted to primarily、uh, stir up the discussion on how to further、uh, act in the、uh, Europe should act in the U- Ukrainian crisis. And in that respect, that was、uh, rather successful. I don't believe he was actually planning to send French troops to Ukraine, and actually, most likely, no one else in Europe is、uh, in reality thinking about that.、Uh, but they、uh, did stir up the、uh, discussion. I mean, if you're not sending troops, okay, then what are you going to do now? And that's about.、Uh, That and actually, Macron, when he made that announcement, he said that、uh, Europe should make sure that Russia does not win this in this conflict, and that would. So this was all about to stir up discussion. Macron, it should be understood, is a, a second-term president in France, which means he'll never face re-election ever into any position. He'll be a retired statesman after he、uh, completes his second term,、uh, so he can more or less say things that、um, politicians who are thinking about going for elections don't do. 
he can be more kind of he could be more risky in his statements and uh, he's using that yes and and this indeed has stirred up the discussion also what do you make of the response from nato and and european countries to those statements and how do you think this is going to affect the broader discussion about western involvement in in the ukraine russian conflict Well, of course, everyone said that they're not sending troops because that would, could, would mean a direct uh, the European nations, NATO, uh, entering the um, conflict, the war in Ukraine directly. And right now, of course, no one wants to do that at all because Russia is a nuclear superpower. France is also a nuclear power. I mean, no one's going to risk getting into a nuclear war at all. Um, France and uh, Macron in particular are always uh, pressing for more European autonomy in the uh, defense sphere. He, the Macron several years ago said that NATO is brain dead. That's a traditional French policy that Fra Europe should look after itself. It comes from a French president, General de Gaulle, who founded the F Fifth Republic that's right now in France. So that's also traditional. Europe should do more, uh, do it independently from the United States, if possible. Uh, how that's going to really work out? Well, at least right now there is some momentum in Europe. Uh, there's more spending and defense is growing. And uh, but there's still, of course, a lot of uh, internal divisions on what should be done. It's a big continent with a lot of independent nations. Uh, so the progress in building a European uh, independent from America uh, defense capability is, of course, not easy at all, if ever it's going to happen, because it's very expensive. And it's, it will take lots of time to materialize, if ever. Yeah, uh, you know, talking about strategic autonomy, uh, Macron did stress that uh, the burden must now fall to Europe to protect itself as the continent braces for the possibility of former U.S. President Donald Trump winning a second term. Uh, so how do you look at such comments and the future of the transatlantic security partnership? Uh, well, there are always problems there with uh, uh, the transatlantic problems existed a lot of, for many years there um, and, and during Trump's first term, they became acute uh, because Trump coming, winning the elections in 2016 and possibly 2024. Uh, de demonstrates uh, the growing isolationism in the United States, uh, also coupled with uh, the uh, many there believe that uh, Europe is not that important, that the Asia-Pacific is important, the rivalry with China is more important, and Europe should deal with its own problems as it finds fit. And uh, there's a kind of isolationism there in Europe too, traditionally French. Uh, some others who believe that uh, relying fully on the United States is not a very good idea, uh, that, that Europe should be independent. Again, that's traditional French uh, policy. Uh, in countries like Germany, uh, then uh, Britain, Uh, this is not really that popular, and uh, but uh, France was always promoting the idea that Europe should uh, look after itself. Okay, but uh, do you think the ongoing debate in the U.S. Congress about uh, the aid package for Ukraine kind of create a sense of urgency among European countries regarding their role in arming Ukraine? It has, of course. Uh, the discussion in the United States is continuing. Uh, most likely, in the end, the Americans will find some kind of solution. You can always rely on them to do it uh, after they uh, exhausted all the other all the alternatives. Uh, but this also, of course, uh, and this is of course an election year when uh, politics, foreign policy, gets entangled with internal 
very acute American divisions and uh, policy discussions and internal uh, confrontations. Uh, and this demonstrates that the United States, where the Republican Party is increasingly turning isolationist, uh, the, which it was not even, well, for uh, 10 years ago, not at all. Now it's very different. And uh, this uh, means that Europe really will have to uh, try to form an independent uh, uh, defense capability and policy uh, of, it, of its own. Uh, though how that will happen and will it happen anytime soon is an open question. Mm -hmm. Well, Macron has also warned that Russia would likely attack beyond Ukraine in the coming years, threatening Europe's collective security. Does that align with your understanding of Russia's strategic objectives in the region? Well, the Russian leadership at any time said that it does not want to do that. And I believe it because, well, if uh, the conflict in Ukraine would be sh was short-lived and would be... Uh, a resounding Russian success, as many believed it would be when the conflict began, many believed in the West, uh, many believed inside Russia that this will be very swift and that Russia will be victorious, Russian forces. Uh, it didn't turn out like that. It's a very costly and protracted confrontation. Uh, there's a, a belief and desire in Russia to see it through and achieve uh, objectives. Uh, but when they will be achieved, uh, that would mean that Russia would need lots of time to rebuild its capabilities, at least. It's clear that there were mistakes in the buildup of the Russian forces, uh, serious uh, strategic mistakes. That means there'd be uh, reforms and uh, rearmament coming after the Ukrainian conflict ended. And times of reform is not really the time for any kind of uh, possible uh, more aggressive, more uh, 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 force-projecting policy. So I don't believe that that is happening. But in the West, many talk about that because, well, yes, many also understand that Russia was most likely too much exhausted by the Ukrainian conflict to think about anything possible else. And uh, many in the West try to promote, say that Russia is coming and uh, the Russian threat should unite Europe and they should spend more money. Uh, so that is, of course, in the politics and also internal politics. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov warned of direct conflict if NATO troops were deployed to Ukraine. How do you assess the likelihood of such a scenario, and what are the potential ramifications? Well, ground troops, I mean, boots on the ground are not going, that's clear. Uh, some NATO Western military, of course, are in Ukraine. Uh, uh, instructors, uh, specialists, uh, maybe a small number of uh, 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 special forces doing special missions. Uh, but uh, that's not, I mean, troops on the ground or even uh, Air Force units beginning to fly into Ukraine for uh, uh, combat missions. That's not happening. And so, But there could be, of course, uh, possible incidents in the, say, Baltic Sea, over the Baltic Sea, over the Black Sea. Uh, where there were close scraps when Rush, between Russian planes, Western uh, aircraft, that could potentially, if something goes wrong and there's uh, life lost, that could be, begin to escalate into something much, 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 something that any, no one really wants, uh, all European war. But I don't think that that could happen inside Ukraine, but over the seas, close to uh, the bordering seas of you, uh, Black Sea, Baltic Sea, uh, Barents Sea, uh, Northern Sea, Norwegian uh, Sea. That's where there could be potential incidents that could lead to an escalation.
That is Pavel Felgentower, a Russian military analyst based in Moscow. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Chinese technology companies are in the spotlight at the Mobile World Congress 2024, a major telecommunications industry event taking place in Barcelona, Spain. The event has attracted more than 300 Chinese companies, almost twice as many as last year. The enterprises are displaying their latest products, from upgraded 5G portfolios to artificial intelligence-powered smartphones. Chinese tech giant Huawei announced the launch of what it claims to be the world's first full-series solutions of 5GA, also known as 5.5G. Other Chinese companies participating include Xiaomi, Lenovo, and Honor. For more on this, our Zhao Yang spoke with Andy Mock, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. So first, Andy, what key technologies have caught your attention in this year's Mobile World Congress? And we heard from AI-powered smartphones to flying cars, right? Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of、uh, new and exciting developments at MWC this year,、uh, and it's no different from. Every year,、uh, so I think of MWC a little bit like Christmas.、Uh, it happens every year.、Um, people look forward to it. There's a lot of presents、uh, in the form of、uh, new products and new technologies. So I think certainly new smartphones、uh, is something that has caught attention.、Uh, behind that, of course, are advances in 5G technology,、uh, and then also. Uh, things that are connected to artificial intelligence as well. So I think, broadly speaking,、um, you know, these are some of the more exciting and interesting developments.、Um, and of course, we've heard things about flying cars,、uh, other types of new form factors. So not just pieces of、uh, rectangular pieces of metal, glass, and plastic that we carry with us,、mm. uh, but other ways of Uh, achieving connectivity and a digital lifestyle.、Mm. So Huawei announced the launch of full series solutions for 5G A or 5.5G. So tell us more about this technology. What's behind it, and why is it so important? Well, we've all heard a lot about 5G, and we know that every time there is a new generation、uh, of connectivity, going from 3G to 4G, 4G to 5G. Uh, that it really unlocks、uh, some revolutionary things. So when we went from 3G to 4G,、uh, that enabled things like、uh, mobility as a service. So Uber, DD, the ability to call a taxi,、uh, limo, other kinds of cars,、uh, all kinds of location-based services. So similarly with 5G, we're expecting a similar new category.、Uh, Of applications that may、uh, launch entirely new industries as well. So I think this is why there's a lot of interest and excitement.、Mm-hmm. Now, when we look at 5G compared to 5GA or 5G Advanced,、um, it just means more, faster,、uh, less power consumption. And why does this matter? So we spend a lot of time focused on consumer-facing applications, so the ability to download movies in seconds, etc. Uh, but some of the real impact will be where most ordinary people, what most ordinary people cannot see. So we think about smart factories,、uh, we think about autonomous fleets of vehicles, autonomous driving, smart cities.、Uh, now, of course, this will have a profound impact on our lives,、uh, but a lot of this happens behind the scenes and are made and will be made possible、uh, by 5.5G or 5G advanced. Uh, which we can connect many, many more devices. So billions and billions, maybe hundreds of billions of advice of devices at a time, and this is necessary to achieve the vision of、uh, what is often called the Internet of Things, meaning where every possible device, every possible thing in your life has an IP address and is connected to the internet. So I think this is、uh, why there is so much interest in what Huawei is doing. Mm-hmm. And while the Congress promotes new gadgets and the ways of communicating, the managing health and getting entertainment, it seems that mobile phones are, you know, widely used gadgets. But what lies ahead for the development of、uh, tech gadgets beyond mobile phones? 
Well, that's a big question, Young. So, you know, we've spent most of our lives today working with uh, these rectangular objects that we put in our pockets and our purses, etc. And there's a lot of uh, interest and excitement around other form factors. So whether they're uh, glasses you wear, other types of devices, necklaces, etc., uh, that remain to be seen. So, but I think it's very clear that uh, many people do believe that uh, uh, mobile phones, smartphones have reached a, a point of maturity and have plateaued, and we can maybe expect uh, other ways of interacting digitally with the world. Mm-hmm. And we talk about technology, but Andy, how important is standard setting for technological development? Well, that's such a great question, Chaoyang. So when we do think about technology, most people think about it as a new device, a new chip, uh, something you can see and touch. But actually, I think the real magic and the real invisible magic happens because of standards. And even 5G really isn't a product or a technology in this sense. But it's a set of uh, standards and specifications. And why does this matter? What this means is that uh, it's a way of identifying the best technological solution and ensuring that it gets standardized and there's universal adoption of it. And this is incredibly important. And it is really what makes all of these advances possible. And what's very interesting besides that is that this kind of standard setting uh, is really a very powerful form of globalization that shows just how valuable countries working together to agree uh, and cooperate can really benefit mankind because these standards are set with countries from North America, from Asia, from all around the world. Uh, And without this kind of cooperation, we really cannot see Uh, some of these uh, really life-changing, civilization-changing breakthroughs that we've seen uh, with 4G and even 3G, and we expect to see with 5G. Mm. And talking about technology, Chinese companies such as Xiaomi and Lenovo, they have been showcasing their products related to AI on the sidelines of this year's MWC. So, Andy, tell us more. How do you see the Chinese company's presence over there? And what does it mean for China's innovation capability? Well, I think it's not just MWC, but if we look at also other major events like the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Uh, The representation of Chinese companies there, I think, show two things. Uh, One, uh, just how innovative the Chinese uh, ecosystem is. And second, I think it shows the confidence and the ambition of Chinese companies, whether it's a Xiaomi, uh, whether it's an EV maker like uh, BYD or or Neo or XPeng, that there really is enormous entrepreneurial energy, confidence, and ambition uh, for Chinese companies uh, to share their breakthroughs with the world. And I think this is tremendously exciting, and we're going to see more and more of that uh, in the years ahead. Mm. And media reports also said that Apple has canceled its efforts to build an electric car as it shifts to focus on the generative AI. So, Andy, why do you think they made such a decision? I mean, I think these kind of corporate decisions, one can only uh, make educated guesses as to why uh, they happen. But, you know, one, of course, is that uh, companies around the world, especially these so-called Magnificent Seven companies, so the uh, leading tech companies that are publicly listed in the United States, uh, Meta, uh, Apple, uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, uh, NVIDIA, etc., recognize just how transformative uh, generative AI is. And certainly, I think Apple uh, sees that as well. I think so that's one possible explanation. Another related explanation goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is that uh, certainly the EV space is enormous and very promising. But at the same time, we just see uh, the leadership of Chinese entities uh, along the entire value chain uh, so from batteries, which are the uh, the cornerstone of any EV supply chain, which is uh, led by companies like BYD and CATL, uh, both Chinese companies, 
um, to the design and even now the distribution and marketing. Uh, and it very well could be that Apple recognizes that you know now might not be the best time uh, to compete head to head with some of these Chinese companies, and there could be other reasons as well. That's Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, speaking with Zhao Yang. U.S. businesses are cautiously optimistic about their investment in China. The latest report by the American Chamber of Commerce in South China says the majority of surveyed firms plan to continue investing in the country over the coming year. Huang Fei has more. More than 180 companies from diverse industries took part in the survey. Half of them American firms. 76% of respondents say they plan to reinvest in China this year, a slight increase from the year before. But most companies are treading lightly, with only three percent planning investments exceeding 250 million U.S. dollars. U.S. companies and manufacturers report the most contraction in revenue growth last year, many citing fierce local competition as a major challenge. Despite this, they believe China still offers better overall returns on investment than global alternatives. 44 percent of respondents expect bilateral relations to improve this year, a record high. Recent discussions between the U.S. Treasury and Chinese financial officials in Beijing covered issues such as financial stability and cross-border payments. And more talks are planned. China and the United States are working towards creating a more stable business environment. The Chinese Ministry of Commerce has set up regular channels for foreign businesses to share their feedback. New measures on promoting the private sector hope to create a more level playing field. With China's vast industrial infrastructure and consumer base, its commitment to boosting foreign investment is a positive sign for the global economy. That is Huang Fei reporting. And for more, we are now joined on the line by Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novum Arcsi Technologies. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Chen. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um. So, despite the ongoing trade tensions between China and the U.S., 86% of companies um say they won't decouple with China. So, what do you think are the main reasons they choose to stay despite these challenges? Yeah, we have saw challenges. I mean, the political tension that has been going on for years. But if you look at the first thing, is that China is such a large market and it's growing every year. I mean, last year we got the GDP growth of 5.2 percent,、uh, and we have got a market that is. Fulfilled with 1.4 billion people with per capita GDP of about 13,000 USD. So this is a very large and a very stable market. And the second thing is that if you go to, you know, areas around the world, you face challenges almost everywhere. You don't have any market in this world that is okay. We are we're completely peace, you know, coming.、Uh, there are a lot of opportunities, and you don't have any、uh, risks at all. So it is that you you can't you just can't find a place that is so perfect that you don't have any problem. So when they're facing all these challenges that China, the Chinese market is facing, I think they choose to stay because of the opportunities are much larger than the challenges. Yes, but despite the positive、uh, sentiment,、um, actually only three percent of companies plan investments exceeding five or two hundred and fifty million U.S. dollars in China. What factors might have contributed to this cautious approach to investment? Well, when we look at the foreign investment in China, they have been、uh, slightly cautious in recent, I think, one or two years. There are a few reasons behind this. The first of all is that China's real estate market has actually been slowing down. You know, if you look at the past few years, this brought the overall economic growth to a level that is not as fast as it was before. I mean, Chinese Chinese people got 5.2 percent growth last year, which which sounds like actually quite a lot for many economies. Okay, we're growing at four or five percent. That's quite a lot. But if you look at the Chinese economic history, 5.2 percent is not very high. So people become a bit cautious. They just feel you know this market is not growing as fast as it was before. But that's basically because of the real estate that has been you know stagnating in the past few years. But in the future, when we look at the future, the growth potential of the Chinese economy is very large at this moment. I mean, remember last year we got five. 0.2 percent growth、uh, amid the stagnating of the real estate market, which means once the real estate market comes back again, we will have much higher growth. So in this case, you know, people will be bold again with their investment. Well, 44 percent of respondents expect an improvement in U.S.-China relations. Do you think this kind of optimism is going to translate into concrete economic benefits for companies operating in China? Well, recently we have seen that the U.S.-China relation is actually improving. I mean, the latest action has been that the U.S. authorities approved more plans to go 
uh, you know, come from China and come from the United States. So it looks like the relationship is slightly improving. But people are still, you know, people are still worrying. We have got this experience that there might be a political tension uh, between China and the U.S. You know, U.S. might put a lot of pressure onto the investment and stuff like that in China. So they are still cautious because if you look at business investments, we're not talking about putting money into a market and get it back in three months' time. So maybe nothing will happen within three months. Usually, if you make an investment, you're talking about an investment that will be there for three years, five years, or even 10 years. You're building a factory, you employ people. So you need a really long-term picture. So it really takes another, I think, a uh, few months of you know, one or two years before people will get their full confidence back. Mm-hmm. Well, for those who have plans for reinvestment in China in 2024, 45% say uh, their primary area of investment focuses on sales, marketing, and business development. And other key areas include research and development, automation, and productivity development. How do you look at the priorities of foreign companies in the Chinese market today? Well, I think for foreign companies to make their investment in China, the primary goal for them is to, is to win out in the business competition and make money. You know? So when they are making these investments, they have to consider a few things. First is that they have to do in areas where the, uh, the, the foreign companies or foreign economy has a competitive advantage in China. For example, maybe uh, some U.S. companies are having better technology with chips, you know, Japanese companies with uh, more advanced technology with uh, producing, uh, you know, manufacturing stuff. So if you have an advantage, then you can come to China and you can win out in the business competition. Uh, This is a very important thing. You have to find the comparative advantage here. And the second is that if they are investing in China, they have to... especially for the consumption economy, um, they have to be aware about the local culture. Because if you look at the Chinese consumption economy in recent years, people are more and more aware about the culture stuff. So if they want to invest in China, and they just bring what they are producing in Europe and America to the consumption economy in China, they might face more competition from the local culture than they have been expecting. Well, the city of Guangzhou, which is the capital city of Guangdong province in South China, has maintained its status as the top investment destination in the country for seven consecutive years. What specific factors uh, make it such an attractive investment destination, in your opinion? Well, I think maybe because this research is conducted by the U.S. Uh, Commerce Chamber in South China. So, okay. you know, the, the most primary city in South China is actually Guangzhou. I mean, if you look at Guangzhou, they have got a uh, history of about two to three hundred years uh, working commerce with uh, foreigners. I mean, if you look uh, back like 300 years ago, 200 years ago in the Qing Dynasty, they started to have a lot of foreign companies in the Guangzhou city. So if you look at the southern part of the China, yeah, the Guangzhou is probably the top priority. But if you do this research in Shanghai, you know, or in Jiangsu province or in Shandong province, you probably get a different answer. Okay, so as you said, uh, this report focuses on South China. So how do you think these findings might compare to the perspectives of foreign companies operating in other regions of China? Well, if you talk about other regions, you know, uh, like, uh, well, I think this research is primarily conducted within uh, Guangzhou province and Fujian province. But if you talk about provinces like Hainan or Jiangsu or Zhejiang or Shandong province or Beijing, uh, you actually get different picture over there because um, you know, if you look at the Chinese economy, it's very interesting is that in many areas you have a, you know, some kind of industry focusing on there. So if you go to like Shandong province, you get a much stronger uh, manufacturing and factories uh, down in that province compared with the consumption economy that you can see in Guangzhou and Shanghai. So if you talk about uh, to the businesses over there, they will give you very different stories about what they want to invest, what kind of market opportunities they are seeking, because there is so large the difference between the different provinces of China. Okay, thank you, Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Nova Marcusi Technologies. Thousands of farmers have taken to the streets of Poland's capital to protest against food imports from Ukraine and European Union agricultural policies. The demonstrators want to withdraw from the EU's Green Deal, a plan to fight climate change with measures they say are too costly. They also want a ban on imports of cheap Ukrainian grain and other products. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Cui Hongjian with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Professor Cui, thanks for joining us. Hi. 
So, what do you make of the key demands and grievances expressed by、uh, the farmers during these protests? As we know so far, indeed, there are a lot of the uh, uh, anticipation from、uh, especially farmers in Poland, especially about the uh, uh, import from the Ukraine, some agricultural products. As we know, Poland itself is also a, a very big resources for agricultural products for other European、uh, countries. So undoubtedly, because of the、uh, posture from the European Union, try to、uh, deliver a message to、uh, support Ukraine. So、uh, exemption of the uh, uh, tax on agricultural products imported for, from Ukraine gave a lot of.、Uh, I mean, shock to this、um, market、uh, in Poland. Also, you know, it's not a, a new issue for today.、Uh, even before this government, I mean, in Poland,、uh, it has、uh, it, it had uh, you know uh, produced a lot of、uh, troubles、uh, in bad relations between Poland and Ukraine. Yes, and、uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said that the protests were about politics and not grain, because only five percent of Ukraine's agricultural exports pass through、uh, the Polish border.、Um, so, what role do you think geopolitical factors play in these protests? Certainly, I think this、uh, geopolitical factor gives a lot of、uh, influence on this、uh, current situation of agricultural. Uh, Europe, European countries, especially in Poland and some other Central and Eastern、uh, European countries, as you know,、uh, once there is not a Ukraine-Russia、uh, conflict,、uh, I think uh, still there will be a, a stable market、uh, for Poland and some other European countries uh, for its uh, agricultural products. As we know now,、uh, not only because of the、uh, geopolitical、uh, factor and also some other Uh, a problem uh, uh, raised by、uh, COVID-19 or some other.、Uh, even so far,、uh, most of the European countries,、uh, their supply chain on agricultural products, not yet go back to a normal、uh, situation. So I think it gives a, a very mixture situation for these、uh, problems or troubles for agricultural products and also its、uh, trade. So of course,、uh, maybe it's just a Five percent of agricultural exports from Ukraine to uh, uh, Poland, just like the, uh, uh, President Zelensky argued. But、uh, I think、uh, even just a five percent, it, it, it will be a very very big, I mean, volume uh, for uh, Polish market.、Okay. But of course, I don't think it's just an issue between two countries. I think there are maybe another or border background of this.、Uh, Uh, arrangement from European Union on its uh, on its uh, import uh, of the agricultural products from Ukraine. Yes, and actually, Ukraine has proposed a five-step plan to address、uh, this border blockades and find a compromise with Poland.、Uh, what are the key elements of this plan, and how do you assess its feasibility in resolving the ongoing tensions? Recently,、uh, Ukrainian side listed、uh, a. Uh, a plan called of the、uh, plan of mutual understanding, try to、uh, deal with this um, uh, uh, problem, especially the border blockade between Ukraine and Poland.、Uh, if we look at this uh, plan, uh, it looks like uh, uh, they try to get a balance. Especially, there will be more、uh, restrictions on Ukrainian side,、uh, which means that、uh, less、uh, agricultural exports to European. Countries from Ukraine, and then、uh, at the same time, I think that、uh, the Ukraine,、uh, the Ukrainian side, also request、uh, European side、uh, to screen its、uh, agricultural policy, and especially transportation legislation. Just like I mentioned before, it's not only the issue、uh, of the、uh, border issue between Poland and、uh, Ukraine, and it's also the problem for European Union side to have a better. Arrangement for its、uh, transportation and export uh, uh, policy or some measures.
Yes, and also the protests have、uh, obviously become a significant challenge for Polish leaders. How has the new pro-EU government navigated this complex situation and balanced its support for farmers with their commitment to Ukraine and the EU? No, I think it's、um, a real problem for、uh, this issue because it's not only an issue between Poland and Ukraine, and it's an issue uh, between uh, between. Uh, European Union institution and also some other member states. Also, you know,、uh, Poland is not a, a single country,、mm-hmm. or to have this、uh, complaints about the、uh, you know agricultural、uh, problem. So I think now、uh, it's still uh, in the、uh, stalemate. I mean, for this、uh, negotiation or for、uh, getting some more、uh, compromise with、uh, every、uh, stakeholders.、Uh, but of course, I think the.、Uh, The major problem is the unstop、uh, uh, crisis in Ukraine.、Uh, so I think once there is a, a still the Ukrainian、uh, crisis, I think the agricultural、uh, problem, agricultural challenge, still、uh, in within the European Union. Yes, as you said,、uh, the protests in Poland are just part of a broader trend of farmer protests across Europe. So, what are the common challenges faced by farmers in Europe, and how do they reflect on the broader structural issues, perhaps within the agricultural sector in in a continent? Also, you know, besides the geopolitical factor,、uh, especially the Ukrainian crisis,、uh, there is another. I mean, border background for this、uh, agricultural issue、uh, within European Union.、Uh, it looks like、uh, in some other Western countries, the farmers' complaints aimed at the,、uh, you know, the common uh, policy, agricultural policy、uh, within European Union.、Uh, for these farmers in Western、uh, European countries,、uh, they concerned more about the,、uh, the subsidies from government. But of course, as we know, there is also the Uh, reason uh, from the、uh, Ukrainian crisis, because so far most of the European countries they have to、uh, invest more、uh, in military, in security, and also to provide some more assistance to Ukraine. So it gives a lot of、uh, financial uh, tension uh, to give some more、uh, subsidies and to protect the interests of、uh, farmers. In、uh, those countries,、mm-hmm. so I think now for European countries, for European Union,、uh, it's in a very very difficult situation to try to keep a balance. Especially, they also try to transfer the concerns or complaints from farmers to Ukrainian crisis to、uh, the you know Euro- European Union's attitude towards this、uh, crisis. They try to find some、uh, maybe a common solutions from.、Uh, Uh, common、uh, agriculture policy. Yeah, thank you, Professor Che Hongjian, with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.